hot dog. Hello, buddy. Somebody's here. What's Experience. your dog's name? Oh, Pickles. Pickles? Yeah. What kind of dog is it? I'm acting, I'm really, are you buying this that I like, like dogs? Because I'm yes. deathly allergic and I don't want to go near them. But virtual dogs, like, oh. I'm way into. Lauren's yeah. dog is Neo and he comes on the show sometimes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Where's Very Neo nice. at? She just walked out. I left the yeah, door he's... open so I didn't have to deal with the door opening and closing a hundred times. He's a very unreliable oh. co-host is the problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's I think it's his first real job and he just doesn't understand like you need to show up on time. Mm-hmm. You need to be there the whole time. You need to not, headset on. Right. right. You need to not fall asleep while we're recording. I know. Like it's, he snores like uh, it's boring. I know. If he weren't family, I don't know if we'd have him on the show. Mm-hmm. Anyway, good on Pickles. He's protecting you. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to Breast Cancer is Boring, a podcast about breast cancer with Jocelyn and Lauren. Whether you have breast cancer or any other kind of cancer or you're just a weirdo who's super (laughs) cancer curious, welcome. We hope you enjoy because breast cancer is boring, but we and you are interesting. I love it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Breast Cancer is Boring. Lauren is back. Hi. Woo. Reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome to the show. We start with announcements. It's still a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so get vaccinated. Hey, if you haven't gotten vaccinated already, you still can. Like it's still, this, this club is open to all. Um, 24 seven, like you can join anytime. You don't even have to be happy about it. You can be like, I got vaccinated and I hate it. That's cool too. <laughs> like we do not require full, full buy-in. Just like do it. You can keep it a secret. I don't even care. Um, N95s or KN95s are the best option for masks right now, considering nobody else is wearing them. Um, so if you're immunocompromised or disabled or... You just feel like wearing a mask. I recommend those. Uh, They're better than surgical masks, but surgical masks are still better than cloth masks. So, you know what? Just use what you have. I think that's best. Anyway, on today's episode, our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author whose first book, Critical Care, is taught in nursing schools across the country because, guess what? She's also a registered nurse, and also she has a PhD in English somehow, (laughs) and also she had breast cancer, womp, which led her to write her latest book, Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. It's Teresa Brown, PhD, BSN, RN. Wow. That was awesome. That was the the best intro ever, honestly. I loved it. All right. Okay. You can like share that audio snippet like anytime you walk into a room if you just want to like blast it, you know? Yeah. Um, Or I could make it my ringtone, you know? (laughs) You could make it your ringtone. You need to do that. That would be so funny. Can you imagine? Whatever. Or your voicemail (laughs) message. Oh, I love that. Oh, my God. Um, I don't know how we got you on this welcome. show, but Thank welcome. You. Very I'm welcome. To really you. excited to be here. You have been kind of like a legend for me because, and I didn't tell you this before we started recording, but in 2011, I was in, I was just graduating nursing school. And in that spring, an article came out in the New York Times, and it was all about this nurse who had encountered this physician who had been like a real ass. And the whole article was about how physicians, predominantly male physicians, are kind of asses. And they were talking about the time-honored tradition of blaming the nurse when things go wrong. And just like all these really disparaging things. Like I found this article, I shared it with all of my friends and I was like, what are we getting ourselves into? And it was you, you had written that article. And when, when I knew you were going to be on the show and I was kind of like doing my sleuthing, mm-hmm. you know, about you. And I'm like, all right, you know, let's see another. Because we get emails all the time from people who are like, I wrote a book about cancer. And 
many, many, many of them are yeah. not invited to be on the show because, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Anyway, and I was looking you up and I was like, and I had saved your article in my, in my Google Keep from like oh, way back when. And I was like, wow. this can't be the same person. So that like was very formative to me. I referenced that article when I spoke at a national conference, which I feel like I should have told you about, but I didn't know you then. That, that's um, all right. Yeah. It was just amazing. And so I much has that. happened in your life since then. I don't know how to follow that up, but just like, wow. wow. And hi. Thank you for telling me that story. And yeah, it, it's all coming back. I, after that article, I got the healthcare version of called into the principal's office, like the medical director of the cancer center. Oh, you know, it was, it was him and another director and the chief nursing officer and my boss. And they tried to browbeat me. And, uh, the guy said, you know, I, I go and talk with nurses all the time, which I, I don't know a, oh. a nurse who, who ever, ever got a chance to talk to him, but yeah. he said, he talks and I talk to nurses all the time. No one ever brings this up. And I said, yeah, well, some of my best they... friends are nurses. Mm. Yeah, right. I said, <laughs> are they allowed to comment anonymously? And I said, well, until you allow that, you may not hear about it. Right. It just was, it was such a smackdown and it, it was actually quite uh, traumatizing. Mm. Now I can, now I can kind of make fun of it. But the next time I wrote about these same kinds of issues it was a really different environment, not just at work, but there were nurses on the, you know, same doctors kind of going after me in the New York Times thread, but nurses came in and said, hey, let me explain why I might call you at two in the morning for a Tums. Like, you think yes. that's stupid. Let me tell you why that might happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt so proud of my profession that in the time between the first column on bullying and the second, something had changed. Yeah. And there's even a, a Wikipedia entry on bullying that says, oh, Teresa Brown talked about this in healthcare. And really? Like, yeah. Like I suffered. <laughs> I really suffered for that column. I'll be honest. But I yeah. think it did make a difference. And you telling me that story just confirms that. I feel like I mean, of course, I have no regrets, but... Right. It made a huge difference to me. And I had been a medical assistant for five years up to this point, and I had had multiple physicians that I worked with every day in a private practice and the other sister private practices yell at me. For, I had a physician scream at me that I could have killed someone because I forgot to put Zyrtec on their list of active medications they were taking in front of the patient. <gasps> And, like, I just thought this is normal and okay, I guess. And I'm, like, a fully grown woman at this point, as you were. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think you had a PhD at the time in English, Mm -hmm. which it's, like, not to say that if you are, (laughs) you don't have a PhD, you deserve to be yelled at. But I'm just saying these are the mind games you play when something happens to you that is so outside of anything you could have fathomed. Right. And you, you are just tempted to accept the reality that's presented to you. But after reading that, it's like I knew, but I needed to be validated that that was not okay. Mm -hmm. And I started to prepare myself for that. I started to prepare myself to meet that in my workplace as a new oncology nurse and, Oh, wow. And yeah. also Zyrtec, an over-the-counter antihistamine. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I mean, <laughs> like, this is not chemotherapy, right? No. Like, of all the ways I can kill people, like, that's probably not it. Yeah. Wow. That was very formative to me. Um, wow. and And I believe wholeheartedly that you received no accolades in the healthcare community for going out on a limb like that. And I... Uh, can relate to having a meeting after you call out a physician on something that was inappropriate mm. and being told that you're the problem. Wow. Because I have been in those meetings wow. before. Oh, it really I'm... sucks. It really sucks. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it messes with your head. Um, yeah. I, w- I was pretty well buttressed by my own sense of the truth and, and the people around me, but still it was this kind of like, you know, no admission that there's a problem and, and no one said anything directly. It was just all this, these kind of indirect 
accusations. And finally, I said, data says 10% of physicians act like this. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we asking that question? You know, 90% of doctors don't behave this way. Yeah. Why aren't we asking what's up with that 10%? And they did not have a good answer to that, of course, because there isn't one. There isn't one. No. Right. Well, I think surgeons are the ones you hear the rumors, which apparently are rumors because it happens. They they actually do throw things. They mm. yell at people. And, and that seems like such a straightforward, very high stress environment. All the pressure is on right. that doctor. Sure. No one's ever taught them how to handle it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, in a, in a clinic, Jocelyn, where you were working, I just, you know, yeah. that's someone who has a problem. He does. And it was a well-documented problem, but yeah, right. no one really right. wanted to mess with it because he saw twice as many patients in that clinic as the other physicians oh. working in that clinic. So, And when you can charge per patient and when your clinic is making money per patient. Speaking of our broken healthcare system... Anyway, yes. not going right. to solve that today, but what I am curious about is I want to know about like you in that time period, I guess, or, or whatever, the you before you were diagnosed with breast cancer, which Lauren and I refer to as like that bitch. Like she didn't know how good she had it. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you relate to that? Like what was your life? before i i really relate to that Mm -hmm. and the thing is for me so i was diagnosed september of 2017 which was also when my twin daughters started college so suddenly we had an yeah an empty nest and they were in pittsburgh but you know and I, i had really been thinking okay what do I want now do i want to do more clinical work do i want to write more do i want to do more advocacy and then I became a breast cancer patient. And so I still, quite honestly, feel that sense of loss, mm-hmm. yeah. the loss of that, that question, oh, what do I want to do now? Um, and, and I'm coming up on five years. I'll be five years this fall. Oh, congrats. Thank you. Statistically um, speaking, that's like a huge milestone. No kidding. As you know. Thank you. Yeah. But I'm... I'm asking myself that same question. And, and actually, it wasn't until this moment that I put all that together. So thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we know the five years is, to some extent, arbitrary, right? But it does sure. feel like a big deal. Yes, it yeah. it's a big We're deal. We're told it's a big deal. I don't know. It is. I don't know anymore. I just, I'm just trying to survive at this point. Yeah, but so I yeah I had that sense of yeah the world is my oyster, mm-hmm. and I'll never feel that innocent again. Ah, right, mm-hmm. right. I'll I'll never feel quite that disconnected from my own potential mortality again. Mm-hmm. Which you know, and people can say, oh, you learned a lot from that, and. <laughs> the facial expression is like that's it that's it right there that's mm-hmm. my response i mean i, I was happy before I, yeah. you know it, facing my mortality yes led to me thinking in, in a lot of good ways differently about my life but does that mean it's great I had that experience. I don't I don't think so because it means I had so. that experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I not a fan. Clearly, anyone who listens to the show knows, but we're just like not a fan of the message of like being grateful for cancer. Um right. I, I don't get that at all. Mm-mm. Like I have grown a lot. Like we've changed and there's no way to know if this change would have taken place prior. But for as much as like we've been able to cobble together some meaning in it and some like, you know, we do a podcast, you wrote a a book that's going to be a bestseller and it's like, 
Yeah, I mean, but that's us. That's not cancer. Like, no. that's something we would have done for anything that happened to us. Any struggle, any, like, I don't see why cancer gets the accolades for things we did. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, that's what I've been saying. And I, and I was just thinking that for me having kids, it's also totally life-changing. I mean, as mm-hmm. it is for many people, but I ended up, leaving academia behind, becoming a nurse because of what I learned about myself through being a mother. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't even call my kids a gift because I don't own them. You know, they're their own uh, people. Um, it, it's what I learned from having them and what I saw in myself. And I, yeah. I do think, you know, being a mom was amazing for me, it's, it's the most important thing I do. I seriously mean that, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, Oh, my kids were a gift. No, it's, it's what it turned into for me, what it meant for me. It's very different for a lot of people, you know, for everyone it's different. Yeah, for sure. Um, excellent point. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have kids, what? but Lauren does. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't right. know if I ever talk about that, but because uh, <laughs> it just looks hard, um, yeah. and I don't want to do it. It looks like labor to me, <laughs> and I'm like mm-hmm. trying to move away from labor in general uh, unsuccessfully. But yeah, that's a, I I really like how you said that. Like you don't own your children so you don't look at them as a gift but you learned things about yourself through having them how so you were in academia you you got your phd in english you were a writer i'm assuming for a while or that was your pursuit and then you got somehow you got into nursing which a lot of people nursing is a second career and i love those people because they have such insight that Yes. I don't have. And they've all already had jobs. And so when they don't accept, oh, in this work environment, there are certain people who are just allowed to be abusive to other people. Like what? Yeah, no. You know, or the problems they're able to see. Like, I I don't, what? Mm -hmm. Um, That just, you don't have the supplies you need? Why aren't we given the supplies we need? How are we expected to do our jobs? So yeah, Yeah. I agree with you about second career. Yeah, I actually had not done a lot of writing. Um, Then went back to school, became a nurse. And I I think it's that suddenly I had something to write about. So uh, the first thing I, I got published was was still a very new nurse, had a patient who was supposed to go home, actually end up coughing up blood and then completely exsanguinated and died. And oh my God. Um, we ran, yeah, we ran the code and, and I've told this story so, so, so many times and so many people in healthcare have a story like this. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality that our, my training, at least my education in no way prepared me for something like that happening to watch someone die. Right. Who, yeah. Who wasn't on hospice was supposed to go home. I had talked to half an hour before. Um, yeah. People die suddenly in front of you. And that is definitely not a class we took in nursing school. Right. Or even was brought up in one sentence that I remember, but (laughs) I know. So I thought, okay, I want to write this down. That'll help me feel better about it, which doesn't work, but I liked what I wrote, and so I thought, aim high. I'm going to send this to the New York Times, and then they said, okay. oh, "We'll take, we'll take I this." Love wait, that. wait, what do you mean? You I just love that. <laughs> I love, love that. You know, that makes me so happy. Really, I I, it does because I love when people, like you just said, I love, I loved what I wrote. And, mm-hmm. you know, it needed to be heard. So I put it out there. And not only did you just go for, like, the local publication, you went yeah. to the New York Times, <laughs> like, which is awesome. Let's see, what's the largest conglomerate of, like, op-ed pieces? Oh, the New York Times. <laughs> I, 
genius. It's amazing. Well, also, you know, as nurses, we're always told, not explicitly, but implicitly, keep your head down. You know, yeah. and why? I mean, I, I, I try to be a, a model of why, why, why not? Why not try to be as amazing as you can possibly be? Yeah. That yeah. sounds great. <laughs> that seems like a great thing to do. It seems like a great message that you would want to convey to your workforce. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're right, it's not. It's keep your head down, do your work, don't stand out. Right. And, the, and then when the piece came out, what I heard from people was, this is a voice we never hear the voice of a bedside nurse. Right. Oh my God. This is a tangent yeah. and I'm sorry, but like there was an article in the guardian the other day and it was like the, the title of it. And I'm going to totally flub this because I read the news like every day I should stop doing mm -hmm. it. It's sad. But anytime there's like a nurse thing or anything, I read it. And you, you were in the Washington post today, which you probably know that, but like, <laughs> I was scrolling through and I, it says something about like um, a nurse, uh, what did I say? The, a nurse describes like the lack of compassion in the healthcare system, I think what is the gist of it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the kind of article I read. Like just an article. And it was you and they were talking about your book, Healing. And I was like, oh man, she's coming on the show today. This is like, it just like shocked me. I was like, you're everywhere. But there was this article. Aww. It was great because it was actually written about a nurse. And I can't remember if the person who wrote the article is also a nurse. Shoot. And I just read it and I cannot remember either. I don't think yeah. so though. But that didn't make me mad. The article I read in The Guardian that was like violence is up for nurses during COVID. Like it was specifically about nurses and COVID mm -hmm. in The Guardian. And this was maybe a month or two ago. I think it came out in March, actually. And it was written by a doctor who was describing all these instances of violence in his workplace, none of which happened to him. All oh, of which happened oh, man. to the nurses he was working with and were stories that they told him. And while I appreciate anything that brings attention to the bedside nurse and our struggles in particular with workplace violence, which is the highest among mm -hmm. nurses, especially in the hospital, um, I was like, why are, why, why aren't we, why does it have to be a doctor that writes an article about yeah. nurses? So they get that kind of attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when they tell you like, not only is your piece extraordinary and well-written, but also it's a perspective we don't get. Is it that nurses aren't writing these things or is it that we've been taught like your perspective isn't really important, you know? Right. Which gets back to what we were saying about the whole question of physicians being bullies or, or, or so many issues, right? Let, I mean, let's take staffing. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, so let's take staffing. You know how I've been writing about, safe staffing for, I think, a, a decade. Uh, and it is so frustrating to me that it makes zero headway. You know, Joint Commission, yeah. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, mm -hmm. I mean, they could change that overnight. Yep. Right? This is part of accreditation. Right. And it is. They could change it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do that. And and so in in healing... I tried to find that balance between what I didn't get and what a lot of patients don't get and the reality that everybody is overworked. Everybody is being asked to do more than they can possibly do. And, you know, the unkind people who I dealt with, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe in a different system, yeah. they would be kind. Yeah. They, they would be understanding. So since you mentioned it, let's just get into talking about your book. The name of the book okay. is Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. And I really like the anger that you bring. Mm. And you worked in healthcare. You were an oncology nurse even. And then you get breast cancer. And then you experience it as a patient. And... Well, you've already kind of given us a preview, but what was that like? What were you surprised by? And 
what made you really angry? Because I remember being angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I felt that instant terror. I'm going to die. Yeah. And right on the heels of that, I suddenly understood that I had never really gotten what my patients were going through. And that made me so sad and somewhat guilty, more sad than guilty. But also as my treatment progressed and I had more moments of realization like that, then I thought this is what I want to write the book about. The contrast between what it was like for me as a patient and then with chapters about me looking back on being a nurse and finding times when I didn't live up to my own values, you know, when I couldn't see how important something might be to someone, or I could see, for example, I had a patient who was scheduled to have a, a double amputation, two below the knee amputations. Oh, wow. And all, yeah, um, diabetic patient and also a black woman who was overweight. And so what I wondered and bring into the book, the question of, you know, was she able to get primary care? Like, was there a whole host of failures of the healthcare system all throughout her life Yes, that allowed her diabetes to get so out of control that she had leg ulcers so severe that she had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee. And, and then they kept postponing the surgery. And then finally they just put it off till the next day. And I was angry about that, very angry about that. Mm -hmm. But there was also, there was nothing I could do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's also one of the moments I look back on when you know, things are wrong and no one yeah. said anything to her. No one came to her and apologized. <laughs> you know, her adult children had taken the day off. No one talked to them. It was just like, so thoughtless. Yeah. Um, and it's that, that kind of thing too, where I hated that as a nurse, but until you're a patient, I think you don't really get what that feels like. Not just that the surgery and everything's being delayed, but the, the lack of trust that mm -hmm. engenders, like just the feeling no one here cares about me yeah. or what happens to me. I am a body in a bed. Right. Yes. Yes. And that feels terrible. Yeah. So that that's a that's a pretty dark note. <laughs> it is dark, but <laughs> you know, but it's it is. Real. But the other reason that that's the pos possibly uplifting reason for writing the book is to say to clinicians, we can see our patients better. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take that much work. Yeah. Like for, you know, for someone to come and talk to that family, mm -hmm. you know, but then again, there's no code for that, right? You can't bill for that. You can't for bill for that. And also here's what I think. And you can tell me if you feel the same, just being on the other side of it now, I feel like I thought, Oh, I'm going to be such a better nurse because I understand now how it is. And I understand all of that. And maybe that's true to a certain extent, but it's like you play this game. There's the nurse that you want to be and there's the care that you want to give. And when you try, because the system isn't built around that, you inevitably fail. You might succeed like one day for one patient out of your however many but because you can't be consistent in that, because it's a it's a level, again, that the system is not built to support, then you're not able to do it for others. And then you feel the inequity in that and you just begin to get frustrated and you start to think like, what is the lowest common denominator quality that I can provide to my patients? Oh. And that's what you go to because number one, you can survive that way and you won't burn out as quickly. And you know that burnout is a huge contributing factor. You know, nurses are going to be leaving the workforce they have predicted. We were already at an international shortage right. of nurses. 
they're going to be leaving the workforce over the next two years in numbers that are pretty scary if you know how the system is supposed to operate. And at the same time, you, you have no protections, overstaffing. I was at a safe staffing rally yesterday um, wow. because I work at a union hospital. So we had an hour and a half rally in front of the hospital. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I've been a nurse manager. I've been yeah. in those meetings. Yeah. For five years, I was a nurse manager of a inpatient uh, trauma unit. And I had to go to those meetings and explain my productivity mm-hmm. and why I didn't meet it. And, when you're wow. product, when you don't mean your product, when you don't meet your productivity, you are punished as a manager. You are punished in that you won't get things you ask for. All of you, if you have open positions to hire nurses, they will take them down. <gasps> and to, and until you meet productivity, and again, I was a nurse manager for five years at one hospital, so I can't just globally apply this. Right. Except that I think if you were to look into it, you would find that this is common. Um, And anecdotally, I know this to be common among other managers and other facilities that I've talked to. Um, And if you are overproductive, so if you, which means you are understaffed, your numbers look a lot better. When units are understaffed, they make more money. And you get your positions posted. And you get the supplies you're asking for. And you may get an approval for extra vitals machines that you need to take care of your patients. Because guess what? Those are all tied to productivity and staffing. The entire system is is broken. The entire system Mm -hmm. is not set up to support safety standards. It's just not. And I was tired of being in a leadership position over something I really didn't believe in. So I went back to bedside and I'm in the emergency department and it's the wild west down there. Let me tell you. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I am trying my damnedest, but it's rough, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's rough. And here's what also happens. You know, two shifts ago I was punched and while trying to give good care to someone who knew what they were doing and, you know, that's an individual issue. But after that, you begin to become protective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not the first time that it's happened to me. It's just the first time in a long time because I have been administrative and I just went back to bedside, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nine months ago. But it reminded me that, like, this is a dangerous job we do. Yeah. So you have a work staff that is now understaff. Understaffing leads to patients being angry and dissatisfied and not every angry patient is going to punch you when your environment is that environment Mm -hmm. how are you supposed to be the advocate for your patient how are you supposed to go above and beyond which is which is the ask every day right right it's not serving our patients and you experienced that as a patient and i experienced that as a patient even as i was very lucky Right. Yeah, there's a a study I quote in healing from a research study, qualitative study that asked patients, well, how do you define compassionate care? And what they came up with were two things. One, compassion to them was action, was actually doing something. And the the word they kept coming back to, which I, I love this word, the word super erogatory, which means above and beyond but it's kind of a great Super word, erogatory, S-U-P-E-R-E-R-O-G-A-T-O-R-Y. And she just won uh, the spelling bee. Uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> all right, you are the winner. <laughs> I just like how it sounds, and, and to me it kind of sounds like what it is, but because it sounds like some big highfalutin thing. But it's, It does. Um, which going above and beyond in our healthcare system can be a kind of highfalutin thing, but right. it really should be a kind of ordinary thing. So Jocelyn, to mm-hmm. what you were saying, does that mean one day you just totally knock yourself out uh, to give everything you can to a patient mm-hmm. and then you realize, wow, I can't do that every day. Yeah. I mean, that that's not just not, no, it's mm-hmm. not sustainable. No. And I mean, in healing, there's a moment 
more than one where I talk about where I let patients down and then uh, one fourth of July where, um, you know, a pro tip to anyone not in healthcare who's listening, not a lot happens in hospitals on holidays. So I had, you know, I had a patient fourth of July I mean, maybe in the, I'm sure in the ED, it does. In the ED, we're hopping, so don't stop by. (laughs) Right. No, Uh, come, come if you need to. Like, I'm just joking. But on the floor is, you know, people, the doctors. There's no movement. There's no, there's hardly Mm -hmm. any doctors there. There's no surgeries going on. Right. All the ancillary services are gone for the day. Like, yeah. Right. So this surgeon decided his patient who was ready to be discharged could be discharged and he was going to remove her implanted port at the bedside. Um, what? Yeah. Which, and <laughs> I went to my charge nurse and I said, do we, he says he's doing this. I was still a pretty new note. Do we do that? And she was silent for a minute. And then she said, well, that can happen or something like that. You know, that I was like, no, that's not it, really an answer. But in that it is happening right now. Yeah. It right. can happen. So he had me carry this, huge box of heavy sterile equipment down from the OR to the patient's room. And one of the aides was, you know, Teresa, what are you doing? Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not that busy. And this way the patient can go home. And so why don't I do that? Right. Um, And right. And the point being, I'd sort of made a deal about my hours. I got off early. I got to go to fireworks with my kids you know, I got something I wanted. The patient got something she wanted. The surgeon got to get the patient out of there. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, and even the like bedside surgery, I, I don't really know if that's. It's not by the book, I'll say. Right. Not that I know of. But that happens all the time. Right. Honestly, this like kind of on the fly, this is what we have at the, in the moment. Now. Would I have loved for the surgeon to carry his own damn equipment up? Yes, but it probably never crossed his mind because the message probably was to you, here's all the equipment I need. Uh, I don't know where to find it. Like, just figure that out. And then, like, call me when you're ready. Call me when the room is ready. Am I am I pretty close to Yeah, well, I called down? the OR and said, okay, so uh, when are you going to bring that box on? And they said, oh, no, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> you know? We don't bring things. <laughs> right. You you come this, and get. Right. This is not Ugh. DoorDash for yeah. surgical supplies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'd oh love God. to sign up with DoorDash for supplies because then at least I would get tipped. True. Right. And you would get your supplies. And right? I would get my supplies. Yeah. Yeah, so I, never before or since have I seen a human in a hospital carrying around one of those boxes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can't even imagine. And then after the procedure is over, you've got this non-disposable surgical box. Like, what are you supposed to do yeah, with the, it? I had to carry it back. You had to carry it back. And it, I mean, it was oh. big. And he, I think yeah. he used about two things out of it. You know, yeah. so probably everything had to be re-autoclaved and, oh, yeah. you know, sort of felt like, could you just, have, maybe he could have asked for what he most needed and put that in a smaller box, but no, no. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous and also so revealing. Uh-huh. You talk about a story of like right after you're diagnosed, things you would have expected to go very quickly and they did not. You had a hard time getting an appointment. The scheduler was gone for the day. Mm-hmm. And they told you, oh, well, they're gone. So I guess yeah. you don't get to schedule. <laughs> like, wow. Was, was that just like the tip of the yeah, which, cluster iceberg? Which, or? which made me so angry. Yeah. And when I thought about it later, I thought, well, what if I weren't? someone like me who is going to call at eight the next morning. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And say, I need my biopsy. Right. You know, I could become one of those lost to follow up people. Right. Absolutely. I, I come back from my mammogram a year later. Oh, your tumor's twice as big. Why didn't you do anything about this? Well, cause I didn't know what to do. And cause you didn't schedule me and I had right. to work at 8am the next day. And if I don't go to work, I don't get paid, you know? Right. 
I think right. about that a lot if that had been me. Right. Right. There could be all kinds of economic Mm-hmm. issues that were at play. It could just be that I felt like, well, you weren't taking it seriously. So why should I take it seriously? Yeah. You know, yeah. like denial can take a form like that or just, that's not an unreasonable position. Right. Or, you know, what if I were a black woman? I mean, because mm-hmm. black women have much, much worse outcomes for cancer. In fact, all black Americans have much worse outcomes for cancer than white Americans. Yes. You know what I've just thought, Oh, this is just more racism in the healthcare system. And I'm Mm -hmm. so sick of dealing with this and I'm just not calling. Right. They don't care about me. Right. And that's been statistically proven. Yeah. So, so many things from that happening. And, and again, I, I don't want to say the people in that office were unfeeling. Maybe they were. I don't know that. Mm-hmm. But I wonder why wasn't the scheduler told, oh, someone's going to be coming who needs to schedule a biopsy? Or why can't more than one person schedule a biopsy? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like that, because. I, I feel like there's so much specialization now in terms of scheduling, which is bizarre. Yeah. That it's and super bizarre. In in ancillary departments, just like nursing, we have the same staffing grids that y'all do. Uh, I come from a very ancillary department, and I... You're the boss of an ancillary department. I am, and... Lauren's the director. I have... And one of her departments are the schedulers. I do, oh, wow. I oh, do okay. have... I don't have surgery schedulers on my team, but I have, um, I have radiology schedulers, and... You would not imagine the number of orders that come through to our facility and the number of schedulers that we actually have. Um, it's obscene. Just, wow. It's a lot. And I guess because you've now been on both sides of it, and I can empathize, it's just that you put it in words that are so better um, how how broken is the system and and what can we do and how do we do it like did you fix it in your book did you fix it I just I didn't get all the way to the end so um spoiler alert broken yeah right well I keep saying spoiler alert I live um But I love this question because Mm -hmm. um, I talk about in the book, and I can talk about it now, radiation oncology, which was great. Like, it was a great experience. And it was... Lovely people in that radiation room. Very ordinary stuff. They explained what was going to happen. They told me what the expectations are. Um, They had me watch a video. The nurse talked to me about taking care of my skin. The techs were unfailingly kind and personable. So kind. You know, and this is in the basement of, and people should know, radiation oncology is often in the basement because the machines are so heavy. It's not like a punishment. So, but this was in the basement (laughs) of the same hospital where I wanted to punch uh, the person who said, oh, the receptionist left. You just missed her. Also, side note, thanks for not punching them because I got to oh. tell you, getting punched at work, not fun. <laughs> yeah. But also that you I'm, mean not, metaphorically. I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm, yeah. I don't even feel that way. Like I'm not someone who has all this repressed rage. And, oh, I am. <laughs> yeah. um, oh. But uh, yeah. obviously somebody in radiation oncology made a decision and set a tone and people picked up on that and you know yeah. it's not like they had a patient compassion initiative um what? Uh, they didn't hire an outside consulting group to yeah, teach right. them how to be compassionate while also Preferably turning a profit? from disney right because getting health care is just like going to an amusement park they um, literally gave us a marketing book <laughs> from disney uh-uh. at the yes and it was all about creating an unforgettable experience. It was all about the Disney effect or the Disney. It was something like that. Wait a minute. And I'm just like, yes, no, girl, you don't even, you don't even know. See the whole, that whole unforgettable experience. Like 
yeah. a doctor comes and tells you you're gonna die like yeah. that's unforgettable <laughs> unforgettable <laughs> duh like oh yeah you don't have to make it an unforgettable experience it's going to be an unforgettable it's already because, notable right I mean n- not everyday person off the street has to be treated as an inpatient in a hospital every day so when that happens to the regular everyday person it's unforgettable no matter what you do whether it's a fantastic experience or if it's horrible it's unforgettable yeah having your legs amputated both of them that's you are never gonna forget that that's unforgettable Mm mm-hmm Having your breast amputated, I'll tell you what, there are daily reminders. <laughs> Dang it. Right, right. Ugh. Getting, Thanks a lot, yeah, Jocelyn, you know, for that Oh, you're welcome. Reminder. Had you not thought about it today yet? Okay. Have you not showered or, or no, I did. anything? Oh. I did. Not a prerequisite for this stupid show. Stupid boobs. Um, yeah, stupid <laughs> boobs. This one. Did you guys, did you see that shirt? I saw this online, a woman wearing a shirt that said, of course, these are fake. My real ones tried to kill me. Yes. You've had that shirt, Lauren? Mm-hmm. I wore I that met Lauren wearing that shirt. When I met Jocelyn. <gasps> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I didn't have a mastectomy, so I can't wear the shirt. But sure you can. And I... <laughs> you can wear Just claim it. Just wear it. Just claim it. <laughs> Why not? I mean, hey, if it provokes they a conversation, did. if it provokes a conversation, cool. Wear it anyway. Yeah. Right? Any boob talk, really, I'm fully in favor of. We have culturally this really strange relationship with breasts. Like, we want to know that they're there on a woman, on whoever we want to characterize as a woman. We need to know that she does indeed have breasts, because if she doesn't have breasts, we have a problem with that. But she can't have too much breast, otherwise she's a whore. But also don't show me your breasts, because, you know, that's lewd and, and disgusting, and we need to blur that out. But also feed your children. But also don't feed them in public in a way that makes me, someone who's not breastfeeding, uncomfortable. Mm. It's like, what do you want from me? Yeah. Good point. Well, that's, and I I talk about this in the chapter when I talk about all the nonsense surrounding cancer, which to me includes the pink. But I I found a hospital website that said, oh, with our new techniques of reconstruction, no more unsightly scars, a woman's silhouette is once again whole. Oh, a woman's silhouette. Wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought, I have a silhouette? And wait, yeah, Is that like, like Peter Pan losing his shadow? You're right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. It sounds like they hired the wrong marketing firm. Also, the fuck is a woman's silhouette? Exactly. The fuck is that? Because I have seen many, 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 many naked people in my 11 years as a nurse, whether I wanted to or not, by the way, whether it was necessary for my performing my duties as a nurse or not. I've seen so many. And there is no woman's silhouette. Bodies come in a number of shapes and sizes and configurations. Mm -hmm. I mean... All of it, too. I'm talking about, like, every every time I go and put in a Foley, particularly for someone who has a urethra that is encased in a vagina, it's like an adventure every time. Because you don't really know what you're going to get. I'm so glad you're saying that because I feel the same way. And I find it it very stressful. It's It's very stressful stressful every time. Every time. And I'm actually really, really glad that one of the regulations that came out in the middle of my nursing career was that you have to have two people at the bedside to insert a Foley now. Because Because you should. Because you should, number one. And number two, when we get in there and I'm like, you know, spreading them and I'm like looking at the other person like, there, there. And they're like, no, down, down. And I'm like, yeah, there, there. And like, up, up, up. I'm like, oh, okay. And you're just like, you go in and you hope. Hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so much easier with men. Sorry, guys. I know men hate to even think about it. 
Oh, but. sorry, guys. Do you? <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. I don't feel bad for them at all. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, in, in nursing school, they let us. We could take a foley home to practice. What? And I. Yeah, I didn't do that, but I did. I did like tease my husband a little bit. Like, hey, they said we could practice. <laughs> he was not. Down did you chase that. him around the house with something that would be a slightly discomfort? <laughs> wow. But also the idea that we would practice on ourselves was bizarre. Okay, I don't even understand. What? Yeah. I'm sorry? That's very strange. I'm hoping this Nursing wasn't school like is a, recent. is wild, man. <laughs> no, no, no. Is wild. No, no, this was, this was not recent. I'm sure wiser heads have prevailed. I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in nursing schools today, to be honest. Because there's also a shortage of educators, which is at the root of a lot of the nursing shortage in general. Yeah, and I this is not in my book, but I am personally so frustrated by that because yeah. um, I was teaching at Pitt at in the School of Nursing at University of Pittsburgh, and you have to have a master's in nursing. Mm-hmm to keep teaching in the school of nursing. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do an online program. I'll get my, what's it called? See <laughs> clinical nurse leader. I degree. love that you're like, what? I need a master's degree. Okay. I'll get one. Whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <It's like you're... laughs> what do I have to do? <laughs> it's just... And then, and then I felt like I'm not, I don't have time to like, this is a book I could write instead of getting this It's a degree. book you did write. Yeah, you did. Oh, thank you. Yeah. They teach your book in nursing schools. Like yeah, that's your so, ticket in. You know, and so many states have this requirement now yeah. that you have to have a master's in nursing and it, ah, uh, it's so frustrating to me. Like there's a faculty shortage. Yeah. Goodness knows they were not paying me a ton of money, you know. Absolutely not. Um, and that there's no way to say, hey, what about my 10 years of clinical experience, my in-depth understanding of how healthcare works? And the <laughs> fact that I already have a PhD, like, uh Yeah, could, could there be some way of saying, you know, that experience makes you qualified? And I remember, and, and I... I should. feel bad saying this, but I had a clinical instructor with a master's in informatics who right. was not a, a really good clinical instructor because she had barely worked clinically at all. Right. She had barely been a nurse. Yes. Because right. you get nurses who like they work for like two years and then they immediately go into academia because they realize that they're getting paid shit to work bedside and they're getting hit. So they're like, well, forget this. I'll just go teach. Yeah. yeah, and no no aspersions no. on those nurses. That's not what I mean. But don't you – I mean, nurses – nursing students in clinicals, they need instructors who know clinical work. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like current, having a master's in nurse education or informatics. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which would be you. I'll yeah, tell I you what. You can have my master's degree in nursing – because I am not using it. And oh, I don't. Thank you. You're thank welcome. you, Jocelyn. Yeah. Very it's on my fridge. <laughs> so I'll just sweet. roll, I'll cross my name out. I'm going to put your name in. I'll roll it up and I'll just send it to you in the mail because um, don't need it. Turns out it's kind that of bullshit. Sounds thank you. I'm yeah. so glad I did this podcast. Now I can teach again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys are the best. You really Anybody are. who needs a master's in nursing, um, you can have mine. <laughs> Like, whatever. <laughs> that works out great. My hospital paid for it. Uh, barely graduated. Yeah, so, hmm. Okay. I guess I, I really just need to know, and this is what I ask every author we have on mm -hmm. this show. Um, I'm just impressed every time because I write things like episode outlines, and I write, emails and I write journal entries and I read much books but the idea that I would sit down and write a book immediately fills me with the kind of dread that drives me to to just eat and drink so how have Fair. you 
I think this is your third book. Uh-huh. It's your third book. Wow. You've written multiple, multiple articles. You teach also. You are a mom, as you mentioned. You are living with a breast cancer diagnosis. Even though you're post-treatment, you know, that's uh-huh. still something you're going to live with now for the rest of your life. I guess just how? How are you doing this? Hmm. You know what? I really enjoy it, mm. um, which doesn't mean that it's easy, um, but it's not, it's hard to put into words, but I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy writing. And there's something, you know, like how I said, I love the word super erogatory. There's something yeah. about working with words and sort of spinning them around in my head that I just really like. And Mm -hmm. then that challenge to communicate what I think is really important to other people is very fulfilling. Um, So I think it's that combination. Like I feel like I have something to say that's important, however many people it reaches. And then I find the process very satisfying, which, you know, it's still work and, yeah. but, but when people say labor of love, that's almost true in a way. It's not quite true because it's harder than that, but right. um, yeah. So I think that's, that's why for me, um, yeah. But you know, if that's not for you, that's okay it's just like kids that's all right yeah yeah it's just I would like to write one book one time Mm. and then have it make me massive amounts of money where I don't ever have to work again oh Um, and I can be the lady of leisure that I'm always trying to be is that a reasonable goal or should I have a backup plan for that or does this sound like a solid life strategy (laughs) Maybe have your backup plan be winning the lottery. Oh. How about that? Okay. God. Okay. So you're saying the statistics okay. are basically equal on those two things. <laughs> or marry rich. How about that? Oh. Damn it. You screwed I up I already there. married poor. You screwed up oh, there. Oh, man. I already married lower middle class. It's <laughs> uh, not poor. Uh, uh, but yeah. he's a social worker and really there's no pushing him into like um, – rabid capitalism so he's probably a great guy though yeah he is yay good for him whatever yeah <laughs> just saying <laughs> I don't a heart of gold don't pay the bills honey okay I've heard but that yes I've heard that <laughs> it's just impossible it's impossible to get him to be a bad person but um wrapping this up because your time is valuable because you are an award-winning author that needs to get on with her day is there anything that you want to like leave us with or anything you want to say or convey that we haven't touched on already? Yeah. I want to encourage patients. If you don't understand something, if you don't understand why something is taking so long, speak up. And if you're a clinician, I know sometimes it's really hard to hear those questions because the pressure is on you to move everybody along the assembly line. Right. And if you can to, try to listen and really think what that person's going through and what that question means to them. That's two things I hope come out of this book. Um, And if, you know, anyone here is friends with the CEO or you could, you know, slip the book under their door anonymously, I would love it. People in upper management and hospitals would say, you know what, why don't we do better? I mean, I, that should not seem like pie in the sky. It really shouldn't. And then to make my publicist happy, I will tell you that the book is called Healing. When a nurse becomes a patient, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. You can find out about me at TeresaBrownRN.com. Ooh, shout out to that website because I went there, TeresaBrownRN.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's got all your books. It's got links to articles as well. You're a great author and you have a way of saying things that I, as someone who shares a lot of your experiences, am like, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. 
that's what I'm trying to think. Aww, so thank you. It's very validating. Like you as a person are very validating for me <laughs> so, selfishly since Aww. we do try to make all these things about me, but. Um, well, and you and Lauren have both taken your illnesses and you've created something yeah. that is not, that's very different from what I've done. Right. And I'm not sure I would be doing what you're doing. I certainly, I am positive. I would not do it with the flair you have with incredible fuchsia lipstick, mm. you know, mm. just, Lauren. <laughs> you know, I with usually the ring get lights red. and the, uh, fashion glasses mm -hmm. that don't have lenses in oh! <laughs> Girl, this is all a look, okay? Because mm -hmm. uh, I can't be bothered to wear anything besides a black tank top because this is my closet and it gets very hot in here. Um, so, but you are already doing a thing. Um, in conclusion, Teresa Brown, RN, Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, thank the you. The name of the book, yes, amazing. The name of the book is Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient, is available now. If you can find an independent bookstore that carries it, please buy it from there. If they don't carry it, ask them to carry it, and they will, more than likely. Exactly, so yes. get that book, read it, buy an extra copy for the CNO, CMO, CEO of a hospital in your life. And uh, as usual, thank you all for listening. And yeah, that's all I got. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Such a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much, much Teresa. Ooh, if you start a podcast, you. let us know. We'll be on it. Yes. I will. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so thank much. You. Bye.